0: It's a great honor to speak at the Kenyan Institute. So uh, you mentioned the uh, publication of my book. Uh, as Tufik said, uh, my book was on the British pacification of Palestine and it's been published into Arabic. Um, it's interesting, I'm working on Borneo at the moment and many of the themes today carry through to the Borneo confrontation. Uh, I'm not an expert on uh, Israel-Palestine today, but also Many of the issues that I raise, you can track through into post-48 um, Israel, and Israel is dealing with the Palestinians. So, I mean, for instance, the Israeli police, uh, their founding um, piece of legislation is the 1926 police ordinance, which is British um established under the mandate and i'll talk a little bit about that uh, my book would might be published into hebrew there was some discussion from the idf publishing house about publishing it into hebrew but nothing's actually come of that as of yet yeah. so what am i going to do today well i want to talk about britain's pacification of palestine during the arab revolt And the the book starts with emergency law. And I want to flip the book and talk a little bit about the second half of the book first. And that deals with the violence of the British security forces. I'll talk a little bit more about that. But the argument of the book is that really the colonial emergency legal state, what I call lawfare, is the bedrock, or was the bedrock, of Britain's pacification of Palestine? I'll talk a lot about the violence of British pacification, and some of it's uh, quite um, quite sensational, and there are some atrocities, and quite terrible things go on. But the violence is uh, it's incidental, obviously not for the people involved, but it's incidental. It's of emergency rule that the British use. And this is not just particular to Palestine, it's true across the whole of the British Empire. And I can see it in Borneo in the 1960s as well. Uh, That said, the 1960s, it's a period when Britain's leaving empire, whereas the 1930s is still in the high period of empire, so the behavior is different. So I'll talk in the second half of the lecture about what I think is the key element of pacification, which is lawfare, violence made effective by legislation. A little bit about the resistance, which is the variable, um, and also Britain's uh, desire to find loyalist or collaborator forces, which it finds both within the Jewish community and within the Palestinians. I draw some links there with the Vietnamese in the book, and I, I have a little discussion of Vietnamese resistance in the 60s and how powerful it was. So, really, I'm going to talk about military violence first, and then I'll spend uh, a piece of time talking about legislation and then i'll end the short lecture on issues to do with collaboration and loyalism and collaboration and just to give some setting the question of british violence across the empire has been very topical recently uh, not so much in the context of palestine but in the context initially of kenya and two key books here by david anderson and caroline elkins have looked at the issues surrounding the use of violence by British troops in the 1950s in Kenya. And this then went forward to more recent studies looking at the violence in Malaya during the emergency. There are quite a here between what happens in Palestine, uh, actually what happens in Ireland in the 1920s, through Palestine, actually through the Jewish revolt in 1945 to Malaya, Borneo to Aden, And then to Northern Ireland. And there are now truth and reconciliation uh, movements looking at uh, getting the British to apologize and also in court settlements. If you're interested in the latest word on the subject, Caroline Elkins' new book, Legacy of Violence, gives you a sense of one of the topics here today, looking at the British military violence. This book is is an excellent survey across the British Empire. Uh, It's a very critical study. So just to start with the violence, in some ways, this sort of easy bit of the lecture. Uh, there's a recent BBC News report from, I think, last week, and I am mentioned in it because there's now a uh, some movement inside of Palestine to look at some of these issues to do with historic ab- abuses associated with the violence of the Arab revolt. And in particular, the British uh, established, or the British launched some quite sensational Atrocities. There was one at Albassa in the north, the village doesn't exist anymore, it disappeared in 1948, but at Albasa in the north, the British um, not only destroyed a village that they held responsible for a nearby mine attack, but they also then put the villagers into a lorry, uh, sort of a bus, and they drove it along a mine that the British had put under the road, and they blew up the bus and blew up the people in it, and they killed anything between 20 and 30 Palestinians. Uh, in Arabic accounts there are other atrocities of the same sort along the northern border with Lebanon and there are pictures of the bodies uh, following the, blow of the in a British soldier's uh, later memoir uh, because he was there at the al atrocity. Uh, there are other atrocities also, this is the Bottom part of the news report. There's another atrocity at Hal Hall down near Hebron, where the British leave uh, the villages, the, the male villages, in a cage with a limited access to water. Between 15 and 20 of them die. Uh, the British also have quite violent responses to uh, any attacks on British troops. So in one instance, the Manchester Regiment uh, captures some Arab fighters, Palestinians or Arabs. British usually just use the expression Arab. Uh, They capture insurgents after a battle in which four of the British soldiers were killed and the Manchester Regiment soldier form a gauntlet down which the Palestinian prisoners have to go and they beat some of them to death and the other ones are taken and handed to the police. They're hanged. Uh, The bodies are dumped near Palestinian villages. That's really quite a brutal response to the Palestinian insurrection of 1936, uh, a very violent response, also an illegal response. One of the points I want to make in the second part of this talk is that these acts of violence, uh, these extreme acts of violence, which are illegal, are sensational, but they take your eye off the key issue of the cumulative business of the British repression of the Palestinians. These atrocities are the largest I can find of about 20 to 30 Palestinians killed in one group. But the British have a a legal and semi-legal system that allows them, for instance, to shoot Palestinians who run away following the British shouting halt, waqif, 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 three times. And the British established in some areas were effectively fire zones and just shoot people at random. Now, these cumulative killings are much smaller. They're one person, one person, one person. But that's much more characteristic of the daily grind of British pacification than these quite sensational single atrocities at Albasa, Hall, There are others um, across the West Bank, all across in the north in Galilee as well. Uh, also, the British atrocity at Hal Hull was ordered at the battalion level, the atrocity at al Basa was, uh, was authorised at brigade level. So the point is, the Army High Command uh, is fixed on official violence. These more sensational atrocities are not characteristic of what the Army High Command wants. It doesn't stop them happening, but the, for instance, at Halhul, the company commander who was told to cage the men and they subsequently died from thirst. He asked for the order in writing because he knew it was wrong and he was told he wasn't going to get it and that he could leave the army if he didn't want to do this. So the army knew what it was doing was wrong, didn't stop it doing it, but also it meant that the, um, these sensational atrocities were organised at the, at the battalion or brigade level. They weren't established by the army at the highest level. You'll see in a moment what I mean when I talk about the lawfare state, about the establishment of forms of uh, permanent emergency repression. Here's the military power. Here are stock guards marching by the YNCA building in West Jerusalem. Here's the general in charge in the first stage of the Arab revolt, General Dill. Here's another image used on the hooker. Okay. Image that shows British power. Here you have troops marching by the walls of the old city of Jerusalem. Now, before I get into the business of the emergency state, it's worth pointing out that the security forces include elements from across the British armed forces, and they also include forces such as the Arab Legion. So here on the slide, when I talk about the security forces, It's the police, the police lose control, so the army comes in. The army has a very dim view of the police. It doesn't think the police are very good. Obviously the soldiers of the British Army, but also CID, which is the Criminal Intelligence Division of the police. You also have the Arab Legion deployed. They have a base in Northern Palestine. They deploy over from Jordan. The Royal Air Force is heavily involved, and also the Secret Service, Mi five and Mi six. Palestine is the remit of Mi five because it's inside the empire. Mi six is responsible, for instance, in int- for intelligence work in Syria, and the British Consul General in Syria, Gilbert Macerith, is heavily involved in working to destabilise the rebel base in Damascus. So the security forces are a great range against which the Palestinian insurgents will fight. So. That's the sort of basis of the military repression, atrocities, uh, brutality, people being shot, uh, probably I think seven, over 7,000 Palestinians killed over the course of the revolt. I want to turn the more mundane but more important business of colonial legislation, a sort of politics 101, if you like. The point is the law in Palestine is the law not of the metropolis, but of the satellite areas of the British empire. It is prerogative power. It is ruled by fiat from above. Now in Palestine there's no legislature. The judiciary is muted in 1936 when the British dismissed the Chief Justice because he objects to the destruction of uh, old Jaffa in the summer of 1936. In June 1936 they dismiss him. So the executive run from the colonial office in London, run through the High Commissioner in Jerusalem, is the sole authority in Palestine. Now, this is significant because the two attempts at a legislature in the early 1920s and the mid-1930s come to nothing. They would have been controlled by British colonial officials anyway, but the legislature is only... There in London. So, if the Palestinians or the Jews want to put pressure on any legislature, the only way they can do this is by going through MPs in London. Now, the Palestinians during the revolt established several media centres, exciting propaganda um, foci for trying to uh, push the British government. And they set these up in London in from 1936 to 1939. But there's no way of influencing the legislature in palestine because there isn't one there's an advisory council and there's an executive council but they're both controlled by british colonial officials and by the british high commissioner uh, i mean bengal and cyprus had some limited uh, local legislatures palestine never did so what it meant was that the law in palestine was through something called orders in council now these orders in council are sometimes used in Britain. They were used for emergency laws in 1914 and 1939. Uh, they were also used in the 1970s for European Union legislation, but they're unusual. They're also tempered by the legislature in London, so Parliament at Westminster can uh, affect and, and influence any orders in council. But orders in council are the basis of the rule in Palestine and they mean that what you have established is an emergency state and this is really established in the early 1920s. So when the revolt starts in April 1936 the British very quickly establish a whole raft of emergency legislation. All of these regulations are established by the Order in Council initially in 1922 and the main cascading is from the orders in council, the ordinances and emergency regulations. And I wanted just to mention these because they're key to what happens in 1936. The British established the constitution of Palestine in 1922. Then after the disturbances of 1929, they issue the 1931 order in council and in fact the israelis pick up on the 1931 order in council through the 1937 order in council for the 1945 emergency regulations and those are the regulations that the israelis now the israeli prime minister rather than the high commissioner enacts after 1948 and the 1931 order in council establishes the main emergency regulations, which I've listed here, from 1936. And it's the 1936 emergency regulations, this is the argument in the book, that are the basis for the pacification of the Palestinians. They are they're what suppresses the revolt. They're usually non-lethal. They are aimed more at property than... Actually. In 1926 the British established the principle which is an imperial principle of collective punishment and this is key for the 1936 revolt and the oppression repression thereof. Now collective punishment is particular for the colonies, it's not um, a law that is established for the metropolis. In fact the only collective punishment ordinance I can think of in Britain today is collective manslaughter, collective manslaughter with a a company where somebody has died on a building site. It is not typical for the metropolis. It is typical for the satellite parts of the empire. And this idea of collective punishment is peculiar to the empire, and it's a big part of what happens in Palestine. So There's a police ordinance, there's a prisons ordinance, the 1931 order in council then cascades down to a new criminal code but also a press ordinance which censors the press, and also then the emergency regulations of 1936. What then follows, these are quite a business to track, there's a mass of amendments to the ordinances. So when the British have a regulation and the rebels get around it somehow, the British then issue a revision to the ordinance. And in 1936, 1937, and 1938, you go through the legislation, which is published in the Palestine Gazette. You see these ordinances and the revisions month after month. It's quite a business to track them. But the British close all the loopholes. They copper bottom their legislation. They have ordinances on daggers, and knives and guns, explosives, movements, masses of curfews, all established under the emergency regulations. The point is these are incredibly versatile. Very, very adaptable to uh, respond to the revolt, and they all flow from the, uh, the original legislation. The British hang up 112 Palestinians, so two of whom are Jewish, and they also make legal the shooting of people running, and the expression there is uh, for halt. In fact, on Borneo, they're taught the same expression in Malaya, in Malay, and they could shoot after saying it three times. Uh, The soldiers would shout rhyming phrases in English, like corned beef. Uh, Later in Aden, in the late 60s, they allegedly would shout fuck off three times. and Then they could fire... And this is the result of the legislation. Here is collective punishment in the form of demolition. And demolition was a specific ordinance enacted under the emergency legislation. I think it still exists today. And here is the old city of Jaffa. And here is in June, 1936, British army engineers blowing up a passageway into the old city, And this is what it looks like afterwards. Here's the passage in, and here are the passages either side. The Israelis call it Operation Anchor because it looks like an anchor shaped. British pretend that it's done for health and safety sanitary reasons, but it's a way of destroying the rebellion in the Kaspar of old Jaffa and also providing ingress for British troops. Now, this collective punishment in Jaffa is the most sensational single event. But pro rata, this is what happens all across Palestine. It's the rubble of villages that the British destroy as collective punishment for a rebel act nearby. And in some of the villages, pro rata, the destruction is much more extensive. Some of the villages are leveled, flattened, the the British soldiers in there reports describe them as flattening the village, leveling the village. The people are usually removed, so they're primarily uh, targeting the property. But the people are then left destitute, there's famine, there's homelessness, as the people are left outside of their village. And this is the British Army soldiers trumpeting that there's going to be another blast. This is from Old Jaffa, this image could also fit Janine, because the British destroyed large parts of Janine in 1938, in retaliation for a rebel attack that assassinated uh, Moffat, who was a local colonial official. And the British also searched houses internally, and these were described as punitive searches. And when the search was a punitive search, the British smashed everything inside the house. They'd also steal things, although the officers tried to stop that. But the destruction inside was matched by the destruction of the houses outside. So the British would destroy houses internally, and if the collective punishment needed to be ramped up, they would destroy the houses externally. They sometimes got the Palestinians to destroy their own houses brick by brick. They usually used demolition, so they would bring in royal engineers to blow up the houses uh, with explosives provided, obviously, by the British Army. There are also extensive curfews. Here's one that I got from the American Colony uh, Hotel Archive. And these curfews are extensively used across Palestine. Uh, they sometimes have daytime curfews and nighttime curfews. So what happens is I'll have a curfew 23 hours of the day. Usually the curfew is at nighttime. And in the daytime, there's a strike, so many of the Palestinians are staying at home. But curfew is a way of detaining the Palestinians at no cost for the British during midnight, during the night, nighttime hours. And then of course, detention. And there's a long section in the book on detention. Uh, detention, I'll show you in a moment, comes in different forms. There's a, obviously a fixed jail at Akka but there's also the main camp north of Acre at Al-Masra, which is where most of the detainees are kept. There are also detainees kept down at Sarafend, at the military base, down near Jaffa, Tel Aviv. They also keep troops down in the Negev, and there are masses of informal detention Palestinians. In the book, I posit the idea that pretty much the whole Muslim male population of Palestine experienced incarceration at some stage and here you have the detention system i don't know if it's a gulag uh it has elements of a gulag of course the soviet gulag was integral to the whole soviet state in a way that this wasn't for the british but it's quite interesting the british don't just put people through the courts civil or military They also intern people. Now, internment, which happens in Northern Ireland in the 70s, flows from the emergency legislation, and the internment is indefinite. So you have to renew it, but you can keep a Palestinian in an internment camp for one year, one year, six months. You can extend it to two years. The army also informally detained people on its bases Usually it was for short periods of weeks, often for work, to make the uh, Palestinians build structures for the army, and the army called the uh, Palestinians baths, it's a corruption from an Arabic word, but they called them Ouzel prisons." The soldiers also detained villages, so the Tegut wall in the north, the fence, was built by corvée, forced labour, provided by the Palestinians nearby, Security forces also, rather like Mussolini, they would banish troublemakers from one part of Palestine to another. They then had a problem that these people often mobilized the local Palestinians, so they had to move them back. They also exiled uh, the AHC, and they exiled senior leaders abroad to places like the Seychelles. They banished non-Arab troublemakers from the country, notably Francis Newton, but also Aubrey Lees. Who ended up as a fascist in the second world war. They also detained villagers in cages that the soldiers built in the village, that's what happened at Hal Hall. They also made people report to police stations and they put people under house arrest. It's an extensive prison system which touched the lives of all Palestinians. It doesn't kill them, it detains them. Uh, The treatment in these camps varies. Uh, There are some examples of torture and the British established torture centres in South Jerusalem at the army base which is now covered by housing. They also have a a torture centre in Acre. So they, uh, they use some of the prison archipelago to inflict illegal punishments. And they move prisoners from one place to the next, torture them at different sites. Uh, The torture is pretty grim. Uh, Some of the Palestinians jump from high buildings to escape torture. Uh, Some of the Palestinians are sodomized, uh, both with objects. And also, uh, Bajad Abu Ghabir claimed to me that the British used local, I suppose, rapists to rape the men. there were also examples of some molestation of women in prisons. There was a, a female prison in Bethlehem. So it's a prison archipelago in which a lot of different things go on. Some of it legal, some of it illegal. The result is famine. Here's the American Colony Hotel issuing bread and milk to palace two Jerusalemites in 1938. And the British military notes the presence of famine, uh, destitution not helped by a locust plague at the same time in 1937 38 across Palestine. So, the British are targeting the people. This is the point of the book as much as they're targeting the rebels. As a military historian, the British do things militarily to fight the rebels. But i making the point to you that the military side is second fiddle, plays second part to the main focus, which is the repression. the people and it's about control here are the gates going up on the city uh, on the gates of the city walls of the old city of jerusalem and the british control through the emergency legislation they use dogs here is a south african brought in from another part of the empire with a doberman which is used as a sniffer dog and it can search for explosives and guns Here are two soldiers, dog ready for action. The dogs are used for tracking. And here are the searchlights by Jerusalem. The British scour the hills to control the area. Here are five British officers on the walls, the curtain wall of Jerusalem with the searchlight. It's a nice image looking out over the countryside. The British sensor telephones, there aren't very many of them but they censor the telephone, they also monitor telephones, and in fact the Jewish intelligence then uh, uh, infiltrates the British to also do the same thing, and they redact and they close newspapers, uh, sometimes Hebrew language, but nearly always Arabic language. And one of the newspapers, remember which one, it's closed for a whole year. They also redact large sections of the newspaper, so you can't read what's uh, underneath. Um, and the British also make newspapers uh, report official notices, so the newspapers newspapers have to do the bidding of the British. And it's resistance that's variable, and here are three key resistors. You've got here uh, on the uh, at the bottom here is uh, Hajjim Al Asani, the Mufti. Here is Fauzi Al kauchi Here's Al Al and the problem is al Qassam is killed in 1935. And interestingly, the British target him because they know he is a strong figurehead for the resistance and arguably he was shot. I mean, even when they captured him, he was, he was shot by the police. Uh, the police monitored the chase of al qassam using a plane. He was a key figure that they wanted to bring down. Uh, Fauzi Al-Kauchi was an excellent leader in 1936. But he was only there for a short period of time and the leadership of the revolt devolved to uh, Haj Amin, who uh, exiled himself. He left in uh, 1937, and he went to uh, Lebanon, and he provided the main leadership for the resistance. You might want to talk to me more about that, because I compare him in the book, The Vietnamese, and I look at Ho Chi Minh and Lu Duan, and I compare him to the operational leadership of Jap in the field, defeated the French. And in a way, here you have your Ho Chi Minh and here you have your Jap. And I was struck by the power and the um, the energy of Al-Qassam and had had Al-Qassam lived, he would have mobilized a very strong resistance. And two chapters in the book looking at the resistance and my argument is that the passion of the people The Palestinians keeps the resistance, the war going for a long period of time, but the passion of the people is not directed by good leadership. And I I argue in the book that the British would have repressed, using all the methods above, the Arab revolt more quickly if, in the first stage of the revolt to October 1936 they hadn't been forced to uh, enact a a diplomatic track, which the army wasn't keen on. And then in September 37, when the second stage of the revolt erupts with the assassination of Andrews in Nazareth, the British army is distracted by the Czechoslovakian crisis. And in October, 1938, the British, to use a modern term, surge troops into Palestine. There's a section in my book where I look at numbers of troops. And there's a massive wave of troops, and they repress the revolt in about six months. I mean, one of the problems the British have, and the British generals complain about this, is there's no leadership that they can decapitate, cut off. Their complaint is the Palestinians are an eruption of violence. And the British can't control it because they have to target everyone. There's a non-existent leadership. You might have a, a different view on that. And the British see the revolt in terms of anarchy and chaos because many parts of the rural areas descend into lawlessness. I talk in the book about many of the, uh, the rebel attacks on the people. I mean, the Palestinian people are attacked both by the British army and also by elements of the Palestinian resistance. I mean, in some cases, rebel fighters institute fines and curfews on Palestinian areas, as do the British, when they replicate British behavior. And that's part of my argument about the the problems of the resistance. And I I look at Ho Chi Minh, and I talk a little bit about the Vietnamese and about their military uh, insurgency, about their discipline, about the communist resistance versus the Islamic resistance of Al-Qassam or the nationalist resistance of Haj I was very impressed by the, the, the long war that the Vietnamese fought compared to the chaos and infighting of the Palestinians. And I suppose to think a little bit about this more broadly, I can't think from the American Revolution in 1776 to the end Of British rule in India in nineteen forty-seven, I can't think of a single successful insurgency against the British Empire. Now, the one exception is maybe Ireland in nineteen twenty. the north of Ireland to Protestant settlers, and they still remain a part of the empire. The Irish uh, civil servants still swear an oath of allegiance to the British crown. That changes a little bit in 1937. It's not until 1949 that the Irish Republic emerges from the end of empire. And it's that mastery of colonial control that my book focuses on, which the Israelis pick up on in 1948. And as I said earlier, the Israelis use the 1945 emergency legislation, which becomes Israeli law, and the is then layer on new laws, but they're built on the old principles of the British Empire. And the Israeli Prime Minister now has the power of the High Commissioner to enact undemocratic, untouched by any legisl- legislative scrutiny, laws to control the people. So the power simply shifts, but the systems of power remain the same. And one of the things I, I point out on the next slide is issues to do with collaboration. Divide et impera, divide and rule. The British work very successfully to divide and rule. They work with collaborators associated famously for the British with Nashashibis. There's a meeting at Yatta in the autumn of 1938. Here's the British general in charge. Uh, talking to Palestinians who've been brought there in a stage-managed affair. It's Nashashibi. Here's the Union Jack. and The Nashashibis are part of a, a, a movement, certainly within the Palestinian community, that discombobulates the resistance. The British and the Jews work hard to promote Nashashibi collaboration, but... The real element that works with the British are loyalist forces and auxiliaries, mostly associated with the issue of with, with the British community. And many of the, Israel's future leaders go through these British-run units during the Arab Revolt. Uh, Moshe Dayan, for instance, uh, but many of the uh, early Israeli army leaders were formally trained in British units you can see here they've got British equipment as well now it's interesting that mostly people remember special night squads that fight in Galilee very brutal Uh, they're led by the British but the bulk of the troops come from the British agency and these British troops train the uh, special night squads uh, to fight the Palestinian resistance but much of the time they're simply going into villages and they're more brutal than British troops they Uh, decimate, so like the Roman legions of classical proportions, they shoot every 10th villager to deter any rebel attacks. And the Jewish soldiers within the special night squads comment on how powerful the British are, how they see this colonial force where they shoot Palestinians and where they um, show how the colonial system can work to keep the people um, in place and one of the key leaders is not Wingate. Wingate is eventually um, forced out, a man called Bredin who's involved in some of these um, shootings. Uh, Interestingly, the British Army is not that keen on Wingate's night squads. They see him as an irregular force. British Army is conservative as an institution. It's regular, not irregular. And the violence of the special night squads is partly a function of the fact that there aren't enough British troops on the ground When the British troops arrive in October 38, the British army closes down special night Squads. although it has a half-life underbred in in 1939. This slide's interesting because to read it out, there are additional police supernumeraries, Gaffiers, Notrim, temporary additional special consul, private police, auxiliary port, temporary additional police, Jewish supernumerary, frontier protection, are auxiliary special police, railway protection, night watch, special police. Some of these are synonymous, but it gives you a sense of how the British are working to bring in loyalist forces in all sorts of different forms, some of which are paid by the Jewish agency, some of which are paid by the British. But the British established camps for these Jewish supernumerary police and the A to B category police officers get regular army training from the uh, British troops in Palestine at the time so this is a great force multiplier it doesn't win the war for the British but it's another element to the matrix of repression against the Palestinians it's Also, in the book on intelligence and the use of intelligence much of which comes from the issue uh, from Jews in Palestine who work closely with the British army and they also translate uh, documents for the British Army, and they provide interrogators, although the British bring in uh, colonial officials from the Sudan who can speak Arabic as well. If you look at Windgate's copied papers in the British Library in London on Palestine, they, they've been translated into English, but I think they're from Ezra Danin, who spoke Arabic. And he translated them for the British, and Ezra Danin was very close to the British Army. Uh, That is it.